Well, hey there. Welcome to Chase Oaks Church. Uh, Twas the week before Christmas. Also known as time to panic, right? If you haven't finished your Christmas shopping, I'm so sorry. But uh, I'm glad that we get to be together this weekend, wherever you're joining us from right now. I'm glad that we get to be together here in this little series that we're doing before Christmas called The Cast of Christmas. We're taking a fresh look at the people who were there when Jesus came into the world. Joseph, Mary, uh, the shepherds. And I, this weekend, we're talking about Mary. And I think that there is a chance that we have misunderstood Mary. And in so doing, I think we run the risk of um, not really understanding what it is that we are supposed to learn. And so we're going to try and take a, a fresh look at that. But I think that um, we all have to admit that if we're going to try and take a fresh look at that first Christmas, there's gonna, we're going to have to cut through some of our own nostalgia, some of our own tradition, some of our own assumptions before we do that. Because Christmas is piled high with nostalgia. And some of that nostalgia has been given to us by artists. Um, And as an artist myself, I am uh, really intrigued by that. But artists like painters and songwriters and filmmakers and and novelists and storytellers um, have crafted um, our sense of of what Christmas is supposed to be. And I think that the art that um, has been most influential for us in our understanding of what Christmas is or what it's supposed to be has been the literary art of Charles Dickens. And it's hard to imagine this, but um, in the Victorian era, before Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843, hardly anybody even acknowledged Christmas, much less celebrated. I mean, it was on the church calendar as as a quiet day of contemplation and prayer. But um, but then Dickens writes this story and you get these images of, you know, a a warm home on a snowy evening and a family getting together and a a holiday that's really supposed to be about good um, goodwill towards others and cheer and celebration and a meal and all of these things. And even some some of the traditions of, of swapping gifts and using the phrase Merry Christmas is owed to. Charles Dickens. And he wrote that to the world and we just loved it. And it has become so ingrained for us that like for us, when we think of Christmas and we think of some of those things of merriment and cheer and, and, a, and, a, and a warm home on a cold night, like all of those kind of all those kind of things, that that's what Christmas is all about. And in fact, when we go through a Christmas and we don't experience those things, like when it's 70 degrees outside or um, when we're not around family or we don't have friends around so we can exchange gifts or have a meal together. We feel like we've been cheated out of Christmas, right? Because for us, that is what Christmas is. And so for a whole lot of people, um, there's disappointment around Christmas because it never really lives up to that. Well, other artists that have helped shape our understanding of Christmas have been the uh, illustrators working for Coca-Cola in the early 1930s. Now, they didn't uh, invent Santa, obviously, but, um, but the look and the personality that we attribute to him, uh, they certainly created. He even has an outfit in the colors of the Coca-Cola logo. And what they did, what those illustrators did, is they cemented for us this notion that Christmas is all about childhood wonder. And we have, um, and for many of us, that is so ingrained in us that when we experience Christmas and there's no kids around, like when our kids grow up and they move out or whatever, we, we kind of feel like we've been cheated out of Christmas, like we're being gypped because we think that Christmas is all about the kids. Am I right? 
So if when you think of Christmas, you think of things like, you know, just merriment and family getting together and joy and sharing gifts and saying Merry Christmas and childhood wonder, like all of those things, then we have artists to thank. And not just Charles Dickens or the illustrators working for the Coca-Cola bottling company, but all of the songwriters and storytellers and painters who've sort of reinforced that over time. And, and honestly, um, I don't mind so much. Uh, I, I love Christmas. I love the decorations. I love the food. I love um, the, the traditions, like all of those kind of things. It's a fun season. In fact, I'm a dad, and so here's a, uh, here's a Christmas dad joke, okay? Uh, what is the most popular Christmas dinner wine? The most popular Christmas dinner wine. But I don't like Brussels sprouts. That's pretty good. That was kind of a lame laugh, but I think that's a, I think that's pretty I think that's pretty good. I like Christmas. I think it's a lot of fun. I love the tradition. I love family traditions. When our kids were little, we had certain you know traditions that they kind of outgrew. But then, now that they're older, we have different traditions. And this weekend is a big weekend for in our household uh, for Christmas for a big Christmas tradition because this weekend is our annual Christmas cookie throwdown. And what that means for our family is we have five people in our family, but now two of our older kids have their own significant others. So there's seven of us now. And each person has to bring their own Christmas cookie recipe, kind of a secret thing that they bring. And everybody has to make their cookie on the same day in the same kitchen uh, with one oven. And so it is chaos. And then that night, and this is all sort of inspired by competitive food shows like on Food Network. That night, we divvy them up, we, put, we give plates, and we, de- we deliver them to neighbors and to friends and stuff like that with a, with a link to a Google form so they can vote. And, and we have categories like um, best tasting, most attractive, you know, total package. We even have a kind of a consolation uh, category called best personality that is, um, you know, not that attractive, but, you know, lots of fun. And so... And it's a big deal. It's a big tradition in my family, and it's a lot of fun. And so I, I'm all in on Christmas. The things that we all love about Christmas, I also love about Christmas. But I think we also need to be mature enough to recognize that sometimes our own nostalgia and our own, our own traditions can get, into the, and get, can get in the way and prevent us from learning and dwelling on the things that we should be Thinking about, and I'm, and I'm not just saying kind of, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season type of stuff, because I think anyone within the sound of my voice, wherever you happen to be joining from, you're probably watching right now because you have an inclination that Jesus probably is the reason for the season. And sometimes our commercialization can get in the way. I'm saying even within our Christian circles, in the way that we celebrate Christians within, you know, Christianity, our nostalgia and our traditions can get in the way. For instance, If I use the phrase manger scene or nativity, what comes to mind? Typically, it is a depiction, uh, either in yard art or a Christmas card, of some people that are very unlike us and very, very unlike the people who they're actually supposed to be representing. They're either shown as eerily unruffled and serene on a night that would have been anything but that would have been very chaotic and stressful, or they're depicted as completely other than us. You know, they are just icons stamped into gold foil, or they have bright gold halos, like they are aliens visiting from another planet. And we'll even use, you know, 
phrases in our songs, you know, we'll sing the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes as if he wasn't a real baby. We seem to be more, more comfortable with the otherness of this night and more, and more uncomfortable with the, the gritty messiness of what happened on that first Christmas. And I think that's problematic. Because we have to assume that the decisions that God made in sending Jesus into the world were made intentionally. And if we don't grapple with some of those things, we run the risk of missing what it is we're supposed to learn. So, let's jump in. We're talking about Mary. What do we know about Mary? Well, we know a few things. Uh, we know that when we're introduced to her, she is betrothed to Joseph. Uh, Jeff talked about that a little bit last week. Betrothment is somewhere between our, our category of engagement and marriage. Uh, it has a, a lot of the same commitment of marriage without any of the physical intimacy. And, and like marriage, though, it can only be broken by divorce. Um, we know, looking sort of at her circumstances, that she was not wealthy and she was most likely um, very young, like somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. Uh, We know that she was visited by an angel, uh, like beforehand, and this angel told her everything that was going to be happening. And we can read that exchange. It's in Luke chapter 1. You can read along with me. It's on the screen, or if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, we read this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, oh, let me explain that. So Elizabeth was um, Mary's aunt, and in, in her old age, in Elizabeth's old age, she became pregnant, and she would become the mother of John the Baptist. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the Lord left her. From that exchange, we can see a few things um, about Mary. Uh, We see that she was highly favored by God. We don't exactly know what that means, but we can assume that she was a a young lady of great character um, and devotion to God. We can also see that she was pretty level-headed because her first response to this amazing thing that the angel said to her was a pretty practical one of like, uh, how's this going to (laughs) work? Uh, because I'm a virgin. We can also see in other passages that um, as soon as she became pregnant, she went off to spend time with her aunt Elizabeth. Then we know that when she was nine months pregnant, she accompanied Joseph as he journeyed to Bethlehem to report 
for the census. And during that trip, she gave birth in an animal shelter in Bethlehem because there was, they could not find or, or more likely could not afford uh, better accommodations. Um, a few uh, months up to, a, up to a couple of years after um, after Jesus was born, Magi visit from the east. Those are kind of court astrologers, probably from the region of Babylon. They come to give homage to the newborn king of the Jews. They must have known Old Testament prophecies. And when Herod finds out about the Magi and he, and he kind of calculates the dates, he issues a decree that all young boys age two and younger in the whole region of Bethlehem be put to death. This causes uh, Joseph and Mary and their toddler um, child to flee and they become exiles or they become refugees in Egypt where they live for a year, possibly more, until they return um, and settle in Nazareth around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spends the rest of his uh, childhood and his early adulthood. That's the story. That's what we know. At least that's the story as presented in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there are aspects of that story. Uh, it's a familiar story, a familiar Christmas story. There are aspects or details of that story that we tend to not include, you know, as we talk about Christmas. Like, I've never seen a Christmas card with Herod's slaughter of the innocents, uh, even though that is definitely part of the Christmas story. But that's the story. But there's another story, uh, another telling of this birth narrative in the New Testament. At the very end of the New Testament, we don't talk about or refer to this one a lot, but it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And in it, we get this cosmic view of this battle between good and evil. And using Revelation-type language and imagery, it speaks of of a woman clothed with the sun who cries out in pain as she's about to give birth to a child. And then, a, and then an enormous dragon shows up, so large that he could sweep a third of the stars with its tail. And it crouches and it waits to devour the child once it's born. But in the last minute, the child is whisked off to safety. And then she, the, the woman, flees into the desert. And that starts an all-out cosmic war. That is how heaven saw this. It was a bold and daring and courageous move by God to to save humanity and to defeat evil. God put the weight of, of the world in the hands of a rural teenage girl. It's an amazing story. But the question that I want to wrestle with this weekend And to see what it is that we might could learn from this. I want to wrestle with what did it mean for Mary to live that story? What did Christmas mean to her? And what can we learn from her experiences? We are told that she was greatly troubled when the angel visited her. And I bet she was. You know, for us, you know, children born out of wedlock is um, very familiar. It happens all the time. So no doubt some of the force and the weight of her predicament is lost on us. But for her, living in a close-knit Jewish community in the first century, the news the angel brought to her could not have been very welcome. 
Because the law regarded a betrothed woman who got pregnant as an adulteress subject to death by stoning. Jeff talked last week about how Joseph graciously decided to divorce Mary in private rather than press charges, which could have resulted in her death. An angel has to show up to 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 challenge and to change Joseph's um, feelings of betrayal. Then Mary hurries off to spend time with her aunt Elizabeth, who miraculously had gotten pregnant in her old age. And the whole countryside is rejoicing with Elizabeth, even while Mary has to hide the scandal of her own miracle. We don't know anything about Jesus' grandparents. How do you think they felt about this? Do you think they believed Mary's story that despite appearances, nothing improper had taken place? Do you think they believed her? Would you have believed her? Seriously, would you have believed her? Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, writes this. In a few months, the birth of John the Baptist took place amid great fanfare, complete with midwives, doting relatives, and the traditional village chorus celebrating the birth of a Jewish male. Three months later, Jesus was born, far from home, with no midwife, extended family, or village chorus present. A male head of household would have sufficed for the Roman census. Did Joseph drag his pregnant wife along to Bethlehem in order to spare her the shame of childbirth in her home village? Then she gave birth in an animal shelter, probably on the ground. The most important event in human history, the event that separates our calendars into two parts probably had more animal than human witnesses. Nine months of awkward explanations. The lingering hint of scandal. Giving birth on the ground among animals. God chose to enter the world through humiliating circumstances. Then when the Magi find them, Jesus would have been a toddler by then, and they're still in Bethlehem, which means after the baby was born, they never went home. Why didn't they go home? Could it be that in close-knit communities in the first century that they just don't treat kindly to young boys with questionable paternity? Then Herod's decree puts them on the run, and they end up as refugees in Egypt. Egypt. For a Jew to find refuge in Egypt is noteworthy. Because Egypt would have been a reminder of God's power over Pharaoh and the Exodus that they would have celebrated every year at the Passover, and now she flees into Egypt As a refugee, a stranger in a strange land, fleeing her own people and her own government so that she can protect her baby. 
What can we learn from that? A lot. I mean, we can see the, the, the lengths that God would go to to be approachable by everyone. Um, we can learn God's heart for the poor and the downtrodden and the refugee because he became one. But this weekend, as I, you know, as I try to cut through my own nostalgia and I try to cut through my own traditions and, and all of that, I have come to the conclusion that I think the main point or the main uh, thing about Christmas is that Christmas is a story of courage. Courage for the sake of love. Certainly, we see courage in what Jesus did um, in leaving the throne room of God and setting aside uh, the attributes of God, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, so that he could come as a helpless baby so that he could grow into a man and then become a sacrifice for our sins. Incredible courage by the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. But think about this as we're talking about Mary. Think about this story through her eyes. I can't imagine how frightening this would have been for her. To give birth far from home. Joseph is the only one that's with her. No midwives, no extended family. In an animal shelter. At a time in human history when childbirth was extremely dangerous for women. I can't, she needs her mother. She's 14 years old. I can't imagine how alone she must have felt, how scared she must have been. But Mary demonstrated courage from the very beginning of the story. You know, theologians talk about how so often the work of God has two edges to it. There's great joy and then there's great difficulty and even pain. And when we engage in the work of God, oftentimes both of those things are going to be there. And she seemed to have you know, embraced both of those things very, very early on because she knew her culture. This was her culture. She knew the dangers and the repercussions of what the angel was telling her. And she, and she heard it out and she thought it. She thought about it. She pondered it. And then she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Added on top of all of the other great attributes that we can assume Mary had, we have to add to them tremendous strength. And courage. She was the first person to accept Jesus on his terms, regardless of her own personal cost. Amid all of the cultural pressures and dangers from the spiritual, the spiritual realm and all that was at stake, God entrusts the Savior of the world to a 14-year-old girl who bravely steps up and stands in the gap for a helpless baby and says, I've got him. I've got him. It's amazing. But then when I think about it, I think that that isn't that what every mother does. That in the midst of cultural pressures and dangers 
and uh, an evil one that is seeking whom he may devour. Mothers and caregivers stand in the gap for a helpless baby and says, and they say, I've got him or I've got her. That regardless of everything that's going on and history and dangers and fears or whatever, this baby will be safe in my arms. Several months ago, I, um, as we were thinking about this series and this season, I reached out to an artist that I know and that I highly respect um, with the with a proposal to do a project for Chase Oaks uh, and a project that might actually also benefit one of our community partners. And it was a total long shot because um, the person I reached out to, his name is Steve Prince. And um, there are... There are sort of within the contemporary Christian visual art world, there are a few names that keep popping up in the publications and in the major exhibitions and in collections and, you know, all of that, those kind of things. And Steve Prince is one of them. He's one of the most sought after contemporary Christian visual artists of our day and one of the leading voices. But I reached out to him um, and I told him about, and well, and I've, I've gotten to know him over the last few months and um, I found him to be, he is humble and he is gracious. He is deeply theological. He loves the church. Um, and, and I, and is super talented as an artist. And we know each other because we're both part of an organization, sort of an international arts organization called SIVA, Christians in the Visual Arts. Well, anyway, I reached out to him with this idea and a question of whether or not he would be willing to bring his cultural background, his artistic skill, his theological knowledge, and help us wrestle with the nativity and give us some new images. Give us something, help us, help us to wrestle with this in a new way, um, some of the nuances that maybe we have overlooked. And, you know, I was telling him about Chase Oaks. He was really intrigued about what we're doing here. Right now he serves as the Distinguished Artist in Residence at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. That's, that's his job right now. Um, but he was intrigued about what's going on here in Dallas and our church, and he agreed to, to do this project. So we commissioned him to create an image for us. And what he chose to do was focus on what I've been talking about over the last um, little bit, and that's the courage of Mary and how what Mary did um, and, and facing her cultural pressures and the spiritual you know, fear, like all of those kind of things is very similar to what all mothers have to do. And, 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 and in so doing, it helps us to relate to Mary and also helps us to relate to the child that she bore. And that is part of the point. Well, I want, I'm going to let Steve Prince uh, introduce uh, this piece that he created for us. So let's, let's watch the screens. One thing that's very key to understand about my work is that I'm utilizing a design process called a dense pack. And a dense pack basically is a lot of things are forced or crammed into a very small area. And you as the viewer or as the audience, you have to sift through this kind of cacophony of visuals that are packed on top of each other. And then you can't get it all. You can't receive all the information, so you have to slowly walk through it. And so if you look at this image, you know, the first thing I'm hoping that people will be captivated is the gaze of Mary looking straight at you. Her eyes are wide open. She knows what she holds inside of her hand, and she also knows the pressures that this child is going to have to endure. She also understands what is coming after this child. It's trying to steal it, destroy it, 
Is this reference to kind of the birth narrative in Revelation 12 and 13, where there's kind of a cosmic view of a dragon, you know, like that? Yep. Or is this reference to the evil one that's coming after every child, or is it both? <laughs> it's both. It has both of those narratives that I tried to conflate and push together inside there. But also, if you look at that composition, it is a little patch on her shoulder, and it has the letters A-O-G on it. And the A-O-G stands for the armor of God which goes to the book of Ephesians where Paul writes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and things in high places and encourages followers and believers to put on the whole armor of God. So this mother has that armor of God girding her body and that is what she's trying to nurture and feed to this child. If you look at her lips, I did close her mouth. Her mouth is postured in a way in which she's singing. Yeah, and you have some cultural references here. There's kind of good, bad, and ugly. And it's just like all of it, it's sort of unflinching. You know, it's like yeah. that the, there's things that um, there are cultural pressures or maybe history that could be either unique to her, unique to certain cultures or, or whatever. But it's like regardless, yes. um, it's hers to carry. She has it. And um, she can't just sort of wish it away. And that's in this piece, you know, as, as our arms around it, yes, there's this pyramid structure, which is one of the strongest not only architectural forms, but in the design form. Sure, visual form. But it's sure. also a symbolic form. It's God the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, and it's nestled about. And she's got her arms out in a very strong posture in her arms. She's a strong woman. She, yeah. These are worker hands. No, those are worker she hands is. for sure. Yeah. You know, But even look at her fingers in a delicate nature and how they wrap and drape around the child. There's a delicateness, there's a sensitivity that is there as well, even in the midst of all that power that she has. This last question, what do you hope like, what do you hope happens? How do you hope people interact with this? Or, yeah, what's your desire? My hope is that people will take the time to stop to read it and to read the image and see the biblical truths that are embedded within it, see the everyday that's embedded in it, but also know that we have help through it all. You know, I love... Um, in this image, I love how you have a, a strong woman wearing the armor of God and in her arms her child is sleeping and is well protected even in the midst of cultural pressures and fears and um, just things that are weighing on this woman's mind that she has to deal with or she knows her child might have to deal with or just fears and concerns that she has along with the spiritual um, dangers that are creeping from so from top to bottom there's like danger but in the center the solid form um, this child will be safe in her arms and I love that I was showing this piece to a friend of mine who is Chinese, and, um, and she's a mom, and she said, she was kind of looking at this for a while, and she said, you know, Greg, as an Asian American mother, the cultural things that I sort of fear or deal with or whatever or that weigh on me are a little bit different, maybe, than the ones that, that are here, but nevertheless, this is how I feel. And I just think that was pretty profound. And that was, I think, um, Steve Prince's intent. You know, the, the name of this piece is called Alpha Omega, which has um, 
a double meaning here. Certainly in the first Christmas, uh, Alpha Omega refers to uh, Jesus because that is one of the ways that God refers to himself. In scripture, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so at the first Christmas, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. But for the second person of the Trinity, for Jesus to come and be fully human, he had to be just one of a billion stories just like us. And he had to do what we do, what we had to do, and that is to be completely helpless in the arms of a mother or a caregiver who had the, who would have the courage to stand in the gap for this helpless one to provide care and nurturing out of love. Like from beginning to end, that's the story from the alpha to the omega. That's the story. And Jesus had to do that. Too. It is a powerful piece. Well, we are doing something uh, with this artwork that for, you know, I think, I don't think that we've ever done before as a church. This is kind of experiment. So we'll see how this goes. So when I was talking to Steve Prince about this idea, I presented it in a way like I would like to have a, a fresh image or something that we could wrestle with. But I'd also love to do something to to bless one of our community partners. And at this time of year, as we're talking about the nativity and the Christmas story, the community partner that we have that I would love to highlight and to bless um, is Refugee Services of Texas. If you're not familiar with RST, um, they provide care and compassion and hospitality for refugees, asylees and survivors of human trafficking. Um, some 40% of the people that um, are sort of granted refugee status and are allowed to come to Texas, about 40% of those people um, are resettled through RST. And they provide, those people need medical care and they need counseling. Their staff speak like 30 different languages. They can help them get settled, get, do job training, help them be self-sufficient, like all of those things. It's a pretty remarkable organization. Well, when I was telling Steve about this, it's like, how could we do this? Um, what he did, he said he would, he would work on an image and he and he actually created it as a set, a limited edition set of, of linoleum block prints or lino cuts. And if you're not familiar with what that is, if, at the beginning of that video, you saw him sort of carving. He carved this image um, out of a big sheet of linoleum and then um, hand um, inked and printed each one um, and then, and then numbered and signed them in a, in a limited edition of 70. And because um, of the sort of variable nature of that printing process and because some are inked a little heavier than others and not, like all that kind of stuff, they're all slightly different. Within the art world, they're considered originals. They're, they're sort of 70 originals of the same image. Um, and with, you know, Steve Prince's popularity and all this kind of stuff, they're kind of worth a lot of money uh, because they are the ones that he created, he signed, you know, those types of things. And when he told me that he was going to do a, an edition of 70, I kind of assumed that we would get a couple <laughs> and that he would then sell, you know, the rest of them through his gallery and those types of things. And he kind of reversed that. Um, he kept 10 to be sold through his gallery and he gave 60 of them to us so that we could sell them. Uh, and then 100 percent of the proceeds would be given to Refugee Services of Texas which is pretty remarkable that we have an opportunity to bless this community partner and go home with artwork that is perhaps challenging, perhaps encouraging, like all of those types of things. Go home with artwork that also just has legitimate market value. Now, one caveat 
um, is that in working with his agent and sort of figuring all this out, even though Steve Prince doesn't get any of the money for the sale of these, they did ask that we not sell them under his market value because that would undercut him and we don't want to do that. So um, we have two different ways that we can engage this work. One is that we have the limited edition signed and numbered print at his market value, which is $1,200 each. Um, and that is out of reach for an awful lot of people. And we know that it's not out of reach for everyone, especially, um, when you realize it's like original artwork and it's going to retain its value, like all of those types of things, but it is out of reach for a lot of people, uh, for a lot of us. Um, and so we have another way also to engage, um, this artwork and we sort of, we're, we're granted permission to create a set number of photo reproductions um, and posters, a little bit smaller poster, and these are $30. And both of these are available for sale on our website, if you're watching online, and they're also um, available in the lobby spaces at all of our campuses this weekend. And so at all of our lobby, lobby spaces, there's a, you can interact with the original, see it in person, and you can buy artwork if this is something that interests you. And you can also buy artwork on our website. And I think, you know, the thing that I love about this piece, as I've already mentioned, is that I think that it illustrates what I have come to believe is the major or the primary theme of Christmas, and that is courage. Courage for the sake of love. And, you know, as I've, as I've been thinking about this message, I've been... I've been wrestling with what would it look like to set up some new traditions or to set a new type of nostalgia that incorporated courageous love into that, because that is one of the primary themes of Christmas. And I wondered, like, what would it look like to, as we gather as, as family, how, would, how courageous would it be to, to reach out in love to that estranged family member yet again? sort of like Scrooge's nephew in, uh, in A Christmas Carol. Or maybe to reach out to a family member and apologize and courageously do that and begin the process of reconciliation. Or maybe, you know, since in our culture everyone's feeling a little bit isolated right now, um, what would it look like to just reach out courageously and, and, and to demonstrate or express love to a neighbor? Because as we've already talked about, most people are feeling a little bit disappointed in this season already. I mean, what a great season to reach out. Or maybe since Christmas is at the end of the year and we're just going to, you know, we're going to go into New Year's here in a couple and just in just a little bit. And it's time for people to assess their lives and maybe make new resolutions. Maybe maybe it's time to make a resolution that in this next year is the time to stand in the gap for a vulnerable population. Reach out to the, the local good center, the Chase Oaks local good center. And they're doing such good work over so, with so many different vulnerable populations. And let them know that you're interested and they'll let you know how you can help. Or volunteer with Refugee Services of Texas. And kind of help be a resource for, for these folks that are trying to build a new life in a new land. I bet that you could come up with your own list of how to demonstrate courageous love in your own context. And I think that you can make a very strong argument that the primary theme of Christmas is courageous love. So what would it look like to incorporate that in? You know, as 
for, for anyone at our campuses, as, as you leave, you can engage in artwork. Or when you're online, you can go to our website and you can engage artwork if that is something that interests you and you want to support Refugee Services of Texas. But if this, if this artwork is not your cup of tea, um, that's fine. It might not be for everyone. But courageous love is for everyone. One of the things that I love about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is there at the end of the story, after Scrooge interacts with all the Christmas ghosts, he wakes up and it's still Christmas morning and he still has time. It's not too late. He still has time to incorporate the things that he has learned. Well, it was the week before Christmas. It's not too late. There's still time. Let's figure out a way to love courageously this week and celebrate Christmas well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, when we look at the Christmas story, we see courage all over it. We see courage in that you so love the world that you courageously gave your son. We see courage in your son setting aside all of the attributes and glory so that he could come as a baby ultimately to die for us. We see courage in the people of this story wrestling with the reality of what this meant in their life. And Father, I pray that you would spur in us courage courage for the sake of love and that we would celebrate Christmas well like that and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen well we are going to um, sing a song in response and we've been talking about the courage of Mary um, and, and the courage that was going on in that story but ultimately Christmas is about God's courage Jesus' courage stepping in to do something for us out of love. And had he not died for our sins and then rose again, Christmas is not good news. But Christmas is good news because he did do those things. And so when we take that story sort of together, we now have a chance to now worship and sing for our king who courageously came for us.